0: Welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Your host for today's episode is Ryan Eras.
1: Welcome back one and all. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute and also hosted on the Fight Laugh Feast Network. I'm Ryan Eras and as always, it's my privilege to be joined by Dr. Joe Boot. Joe, good to see you again this week.
0: Good to be back. Nice to see
1: you. Mm-hmm. As always, we're uh, so. It. Uh, I was more surprised than anyone. But in 50 minutes last week, we did not cover everything there is to say about idolatry. So we're uh, we're back at it again for another week here. Uh, this is uh, this is a continuation of our treatment of the second commandment. If you're just joining us, uh, we are in the midst of a series uh, working through the Ten Commandments. And as I said, this is the second second commandment, part two. So you're not uh, you're not too late. You can uh, you can catch up pretty quick. And we've we've been dealing with uh, what uh, what is the uh, sort of the nature and meaning and understanding of idolatry. Uh, That was in last week's episode. This week we're getting into uh, sort of some of the uh, some of the instances of idolatry where we see it uh both in the culture as well as uh within the church. And this uh this can be a real uh, a real blind spot for some Christians. We don't uh, we tend to think we have we have a temptation to think that idolatry is uh, is really prevalent sort of out there, but it, it is uh the the devil is the devil is a, a real ninja in a way where he can he can tempt and use absolutely anything to uh to turn us away from God so we're get, we're going to address the uh, the phenomenon of idolatry within the church and before we dive into that discussion again a reminder we are running our inaugural American uh, Runner Academy that's happening May 7th through 17th this year 2023. And you can apply at uh, at our website at EzraInstitute.com. Lots of information there. It's a two week program, ten, a ten day program, residential on site. You'll be, uh, you know, dining, studying, fellowshipping with with several other delegates, uh, with faculty and staff, uh, all together in a uh, a learning environment where we can can just consider. How we, how we got to this place as a society where we are in the West, what, what were the major ideas, what were the major movements that, uh, that influenced uh, policies and decisions and brought culture to where we are, and how we can stand on the word of God uh, to make a, a faithful and principled response to, to work at building a, uh, a more godly, more faithful society. So if uh, spaces spaces will be limited to that and there is an application process as well just to make sure that, uh, that this is the right program for you and that you are the right sort of person who will really benefit from this program. So if that's uh, if that's something of interest to you, please go to ezrainstitute.com check out more information about the programs and apply for the runner academy. That's May 7th through 17th in Chatsworth, Georgia this year. We don't Looking want to. Uh, to it. Yeah, me too. Me too. I understand you'll be in attendance.
0: I'll be there. It's, uh, it's important as well just to um, remind people that fundamentally the, 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 the Runner Academy and all of our programs are about developing a, a Christian mind rooted in the, the heart of the believer that we're a new creature. And that uh, we're being transformed by the renewal of our mind. And how does that happen? And as that happens for us as believers, individually and then in the life of the church, as we start to um, live our lives in all the various spheres and contexts of society and culture, the seasoning Mm. life of the gospel, the salt and light uh, that uh, we are in Christ begins to be disseminated, the salt is not losing its saltiness. And I think, you know, if we could, as we even think about today's subject, really, this is part of the challenges that um, when the church loses its saltiness, when we cease to be unequivocal, uh, when the Christian mind begins to uh, evaporate and we're no longer transformed by the renewing of our minds, but we're being conformed to the world, uh, we start to pull the teeth really of our message it loses its bite it loses its savor we cease to be that preservative in society and we cease to be obviously a light in dark places so the runner academy is about all of those things really beginning with the personal transformation of the individual's thinking
1: no that's uh, that's really well said you should do more of these i thought so um so, <laughs> there, there is, and we will. Uh, this is this is a good transition into the uh, the bulk of our discussion here, uh, because we're going to be dealing with what uh, another w- another way to uh, to describe what uh, what you've been saying there is uh, is prophetic uh, in the uh, in the original sense of the word of telling forth what uh, what God has declared. And that uh, those, those sorts of statements are you know, are often raw, are are often not what a uh, a culture, even a uh, even Christians within a culture, like to hear. And Scripture has some of its hardest words reserved for uh, for false prophets and for those who uh, those who court false prophecy, uh, the prophets who uh, who speak only what to, only what the people want to hear yes so we'll get into uh, we'll get into the distinction of uh, of prophecy and how it relates to idolatry and joe we uh, we're going to start well we're going to start by looking at uh, looking at a a recent uh, pretty big deal something that's kind of uh, too big to miss in terms of uh, of a target for our discussion and that is uh, there is there's a, an upcoming uh church of england synod meeting where one of the uh, one of the items on on discussion under discussion i should say is the the formal rebuke the formal censure of a member of the clergy for his uh, for his act and for his stand of upholding the the biblical doctrine of uh, of human sexuality and marriage and for for speaking against uh the church's practice of blessing these uh these same-sex unions or what uh, what they're calling marriages. So th- this is uh as i said possibly a a more obvious uh case that we could point at but uh, we don't we definitely don't want to breeze over it. So maybe take us through some of some of the details there and some of the uh, the implications.
0: Yeah well i think as we sort of think about applying the question of idolatry in two areas, the church and the world, it's maybe a good idea, certainly where scripture would want to start with the people of God, with the church. Mm. And um, the particular story I think you're referring to is actually a lay member of the synod. He's not ordained clergy, but a lay member of the synod, elected representative in the synod. And it's been a rather shocking development that this person who... Uh, has been uh, talking about the importance of protecting families and uh, vulnerable children, preventing the sexualization of children, for example, within the church, preventing the the, um, infiltration of organizations like Stonewall uh, Mm. into the Church of England, um, and was elected to Synod on that basis by the people within his own diocese that he would speak to those issues. Has just this week received a letter from the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Archbishop of York in the run-up or the opening uh, of this period of the synod, uh, in order to censure him, to silence him, to rebuke him. He's been formally rebuked, uh, and we are we've reached a pretty pass, haven't we, when for um, defending the Bible's teaching on human relationships, human sexuality, marriage, uh, and the church's own teaching on those things, that the, the very bishops, the most senior bishops in the hierarchy of the Church of England would rebuke you for it, uh, would not tolerate it, would, but at the same time wants to tolerate and celebrate and bless um, same-sex unions, stopping short, of course, of calling it marriage. And this is the grand mm. idolatrous fudge, and this is where I think we, <laughs> you know, see the uh, the the issue of idolatry um, so clearly here. What's uh, in, in a certain sense, I think that the, the 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 issue of the Church of England is is significant because uh, it's a it's a very it's, it's a large church. It's the largest denomination in the United Kingdom. Um, it's been it's been shrinking of course uh, memberships fell below a million some years ago now uh, so it has been shrinking but uh, it's still the ch- the churches that you see in the center of towns and villages uh, the, right. the the great cathedrals and the great buildings these are largely not all but they are they are largely the 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 the, the, the dreaming spires these are the, the the churches of the church of england of the anglican church in england now of course when we refer to the church of england and to anglicanism we mustn't forget that there is a global anglican communion uh, mm-hmm. of of um, millions of christians many of them faithful the global anglican communion does need to be distinguished from simply the anglican church in england the, the church of england but it's significant because it's got this this attachment to the state it's the it's the formally established church and so, it purports to offer a lead to Christians. It, it purports, in a certain sense, to be the sort of conscience of the of the nation. Um, it's often the the. It often indicates a direction that the other churches, many of the other nonconformist churches, will follow. But it it is basically engaged in this subtle leveling project. Uh, the, the the gospel, the word of God, seems to be being turned into a committee. And there's an there's an innovation. There is a draining of the significance of uh, the of a Christian terminology. So although the same words are used, everything continues. The outward appearance continues, but the the core meaning, the core significance, uh, the core significance is evaporating. Um, it's all being transformed into equivocation. And I was reading something the other day that, as I was reading it, really struck me uh, that this is really something that is taking place now in the contemporary church. Uh, ambiguity and um, equivocation tend to be more uh, interesting to people, more titillating, uh, mm. more stimulating, uh, m- more... more. Uh, amenable to committees and those sorts of discussions than clarity around joy in the good and an opposition to and a loathing of evil. Um, So I was, uh, I happened to be uh, reading somebody who needs to be read cautiously, um, but I was reading something in, uh, in Soren Kierkegaard as he was reflecting on his age and thinking about the, this reflective age that he seemed to be entering into. Hmm. And he said something very interesting that I wanted to uh, wanted to quote here. Uh, he says, "Force can be used against rebellion; punishment awaits demonstrable counterfeiting, but dialectical secretiveness is difficult to root out. It takes relatively more acute ears to track down the muffled steps of reflection, stealing down the furtive corridors of ambiguity and equivocation." I thought, what what an amazing way of of summarizing the condition of the contemporary church. And then then he says, Hmm. uh, again, as he reflects on his own age, but I think it's very much true of our own, we do not want to abolish the monarchy by no means, but if little by little we could get it transformed into make-believe, we would gladly shout, hurrah for the king. In the same way we are (laughs) willing to keep Christian terminology but privately know that nothing decisive is supposed to be meant by it. And we will not be repentant, for after all, we are not demolishing anything. No, quite harmlessly and inoffensively, we allow the established order to go on. But in a reflective knowledge, we are more or less aware of its non-existence. And I was reading that and I thought, what uh, a powerful description, really, uh, of the 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 present age um we've so drained everything of its significance its true meaning it continues uh but that in a certain sense makes it um comic it's tragic because Mm. the meaning in everything has been sapped it's comic because it goes on and so i don't know about you ryan but very often you read these articles i mean we referred to one last week where Another historic church in this instance in Leicester that's right in the United kingdom uh was in a um there were there were complaints at least there were complaints which was a, uh, at least something about uh, a a rainbow flag being draped over the altar of the church and this becoming a permanent fixture um in the in this particular church community there's another instance of um uh Gaia art being set up in Exeter Cathedral this past week. Um yes, where you've that's sort of right. got these almost open acts of idolatry, but they're but they're 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 furtive, they're secretive, it's it's gradual. It's this sort of the the outward trappings remain, but the substance is drained and everything is turned into ambiguity and equivocation. And it's on the one hand, you read these articles and to a sincere believer who loves the word of God, they seem almost comic um, in their foolishness. But but they are utterly idolatrous. It's complete idolatry, but it's so subtle that nobody thinks they need to repent because Mm -hmm. everything's now Mm -hmm. equivocal. And, and I think that if we were to talk really about the sin of the modern church, and it's not just the Church of England, we could look at churches across North America, church movements across Europe, many that even purport to be evangelical, where everything has become, where we where the kind of idolatry that says we get to reflectively pick and choose which elements of God's word we're prepared to take remotely seriously. And so the language goes on. We still talk about um, the church. We still talk about uh, God. We still talk about virtue. We still talk about justice. We still talk about righteousness. But the substance is now equivocal. It's ambiguous. And if you are unequivocal and unambiguous, you are a problem. You are a, a fly in the ointment. You are one of those irritating prophets who is troubling Israel uh, because we want the illusion that all is OK to continue. We love to have our committees, our our presbytery gatherings, our synod meetings, our annual national conferences. But we equivocate and are ambiguous around the true issues of our time. And that's the essence, I think, of the idolatry in the church today. It's gripping Mm. us and it's an offense to god it's a stench in his nostrils
1: yeah and you you just mentioned uh the prophets we talked about prophecy in uh, in the introduction here and it's uh, it's no accident i think that uh, god god calls this out god this this does this this present uh denuding of the the power of the of religious and uh Ecclesiastical uh, sort of language and liturgy. This this is not new to the Lord, and He calls it out uh, in mm-hmm. uh, in no uncertain terms several places throughout Scripture. And do you uh, have
0: uh, do you have one of those from the Book of Isaiah there?
1: I've got it. Yeah, this is uh, this is from Isaiah one. This uh, this is the uh, the first blast of the trumpet from Isaiah's uh, in Isaiah's book. Uh, starting at verse eleven, he says he says to the people, "To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me?" says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices." Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, there's something that in the book of Amos that echoes that in, in Amos 5. And you'll right. recall, Ryan, because I think that um, you were actually in the uh, with me in the very early years uh, of Westminster Chapel in Toronto. Uh, one of the first sermon series I ever preached was uh, in the book of Amos. That's right. And uh, Amos is particularly interesting because the prophecies of Amos are aimed both at the uh, people of God, uh, the the Hebrews, the Israelites, but also at the pagan nations around Israel. And so but both of these uh, communities are being uh, referred to. Uh, yes. in the book whole of the book of Amos but in um, in Amos chapter 5 God similarly to Isaiah there aims his rebuke at the hypocrisy uh, at the subtle idolatry of the people of God and he says in Amos 5:21 following I hate I despise your feasts I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings or fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. And I think that we have... uh, reached a point where this this is a moment of real um self reflection for the christian church in the west because we are in the grip of a great idolatry a great apostasy that's mm-hmm. taking place and the 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 question is whether we will falter between two opinions and of course this was one of the questions that was put to the people of god um by the prophets how long will you falter between two opinions if 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 Baal is the Lord, if he is God, then follow him. But if the Lord is God, then follow him. And and of mm-hmm. course, Baalism, Baal worship, um, was uh, symbolized by the, the phallus. And uh, it was a kind of state fertility religion. Um, and actually, it's interesting when you and this would uh, it will be a segue in a moment, I think, into our into our second sort of part of this as we think about the the idolatry of the nation. Um, mm-hmm. But the way in which uh, in a certain sense, a fertility cult is making its way into the church. Uh, the 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 worship of Baal that that that, that there is um, of course because we know that the great battle right now is around this whole area of human sexuality and sexual perversion and the attempt to redefine the nature of the human identity, human sexuality, marriage, and so on, and the way in which this is making its way into the thinking, into the lives, into the uh, the the worship, the churches of so many Christians and we can't just point the finger at one uh, church movement and what absolutely breaks your heart is when you see those that should know better those that have claimed to know better those that have said that they are uh, leading people away from dead religion um caught in the grip of these things and it's it's a it's a tragedy to to see and witness the catalog over the last few years of
1: Profile
0: mm. evangelical figures who have fallen and compromised in um, this area and the disrepute that it brings on the church. Uh, there was a mm. um, an article that I think uh, we both read in the Walrus in in Canada uh, in the, in recent days, uh, picking up on a, um, a sort of megachurch uh, multi-site movement in in Canada. Of um, of Bruxy K V, um, yeah. who was caught up in the grip of a scandal, he was uh, arrested. He's out on bail. There's been no. There's been no uh, um, final findings of of the courts yet. Yeah, no but, sentencing. Uh, a whole yet. movement. No sentencing. Quite. No 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 trial. But a a, a movement caught up in um, what what ostensibly was a claim that while we are doing things differently. And when we are, we are a church for, for those who don't like church. We're a, we're a faith spiritual community for those who aren't too keen on institutionalized Christianity. Um, mm, yeah. Big uh, on Jesus,
1: are, down on religion, kind of, uh, kind of. That's idea. right.
0: The notion that uh, the the reason that people somehow are not attracted to the faith is clarity around critical scriptural issues and where ambiguity and equivocation and third ways uh, mm. are the better way, and uh, uh, it's 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 tragic. I think one of the most striking features of that that um, uh, heart rending article uh, in, in in the Walrus was the was the opening where it talked about um, this particular man tattooing himself with a text from Leviticus about not having tattoos.
1: That's right. And
0: uh, and and celebrating this in a very open and public way in front of his congregation. Um, and the issue there is not, we can have the debate about what the Bible means there. Uh, and especially as we think about the new covenant, what, what, uh, what the relationship might be to a, a law, what the significance of that was for uh, Israel about tattooing. But the goal there was to mock the law of God. And it came out more than once from that pulpit of mocking of the law of God, the sacrificial system, an an opposition to the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And instead of that being called out, the vast majority, um, because of popularity um, and wanting to be associated with what is popular, much of the the, uh, evangelical community, just rallied around and promoted, helped promote these ideas, promoted the person, mm-hmm. and uh, what lies underneath, in, uh, as has come out now, is scandal. And um, this is what this is what always happens when we are selective about what we are going to believe about the Word of God. That's what happens when there is false teaching, and as Scripture says. Uh, Men who will then uh, make their way, manipulate their way into the homes of weak-willed women. This is what Paul says is one of the marks of a false teacher. And uh, we're so unwilling in the modern church to graciously speak the truth in love, to call out false teaching, to call out idolatry, to call out sin, call it what it is, uh, exercise church discipline for the good of Christ's church. And for the honor of Christ's name, and because of these expressions of idolatry, whether it be in Anglicanism or in the independent church movements or in evangelicalism more broadly, the name of Christ is defamed among the people. And this is, of course, is the uh, the name of the Lord is defamed among the among the nations. And this is what happened in Israel, of course, when Israel was in the grip of idolatry, God says, "My name is defamed among the peoples. God's name is dragged down when the Christian church um, engages in an idolatry that says we can approach God's revelation selectively. Uh, Mm -hmm. We can put ourselves really uh, in the position of God. Everything continues. On the outside, it all looks good. But on the inside, there is a draining of vitality because of equivocation and ambiguity that's where it begins it's more subtle until it becomes eventually an open and an egregious idolatry
1: yes yeah and it, uh, it this impulse really gets harkens back to you know, to the original idolatry that you shall be as God to uh, to sit to presume to sit in judgment, and to approach God on our own terms, in our own way. Uh, I mean, there are there are plenty of sociological answers, as we've uh, we've referred to the meeting house about people who would go to because oh they don't they don't want a church they still want a church but they don't want a church like the one that they grew up in. But uh, but the yeah, the religious impulse is that uh, that we we can pick and choose how and. Uh, and to what extent we will worship?
0: Well, it's all part of the grand leveling, isn't it? The mm. the, uh, the 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 leveling of this reflective age. Um, that you know, we don't want hierarchies. We don't hmm. want church discipline. We don't want to sit under the authority of God's word. We don't want accountability. And so. Uh, there is of course a gravitation there's been a popular gravitation to those who who say well we can offer you spirituality but without accountability we can right. offer you a gospel without law we can offer you redemption without substitutionary atonement uh, we can offer you uh, a a spiritual way of life we can offer you a a um, a fulfilling way of life that engages you uh spiritually uh, that that will even entertain you but will the, dem, will ultimately demand nothing from you uh it's a cheap grace as bonhoeffer right. would have described it
1: yeah no that's the that's the perfect term for it
0: and that uh, that that is the character and nature of idolatry and uh, But it's, it's there, you see it, it's interesting the way the Lord puts it in Isaiah and in the book of Amos, everything continued, the festivals were still happening, the festive right. gatherings were still happening, the Sabbaths were happening,
1: mm-hmm. but they were
0: an offense in God's nostrils, because righteousness and justice had gone, they had been evacuated of their true meaning.
1: So we've, uh, we've dealt uh, on a, from a couple of different angles with uh, idolatry Within the church and how that manifests, but th- it is uh, it is true that idolatry is everywhere. And we were we were talking earlier about some of the uh, or one one of the major manifestations of of idolatry, uh, bo- both uh, within and without the church. But idolatry is uh, is the worship of man uh, is is a one way that we could reduce it to. And in the, uh, you know, in the civil realm, that plays out as uh, something that uh, that we get to quite a bit here, uh, which is the uh, the problem of statism. And I think uh, you've uh, you you've referred to it in uh, in various places as man enlarged or mass man. Uh, Mm -hmm. Can you just uh, just tighten tighten those links? uh, Show us how how this. this boils down to uh, an idolatrous uh, perspective and position.
0: Well, just as you said, Ryan, earlier, that uh, there's nothing new about idolatry in the church. There's nothing Mm. new about idolatry in the nation or in the nations. And we as, uh, as Christians have at least sought to emphasize in historic evangelicalism the need for personal holiness and for personal devotion to Christ that shuns idolatry. We've not been so good in recent decades at dealing with the issue of national idolatry. I mean, Mm -hmm. Israel was a holy nation. It wasn't just about holy individuals, which means to be set apart for God, but it was a holy nation. And Uh, God is interested in um, nations that exalt righteousness. The scripture says the righteousness exalts a people, but sin is a reproach to any nation. And the fact that the prophets were sent to the nations and that we are sent to the nations. I mean, Amos was uh, prophesying to to the pagan nations around. We see Jonah being sent to the heart of the Assyrian Empire. We see Daniel and his friends there in Babylon as prophets. And uh, you have, in a certain sense, the archetypal act of state worship of idolatry um, in the book of Daniel, where the Nebuchadnezzar sets up a golden image of himself, and the people are required to fall down and worship when the music played. And this was nothing unusual. You look at the great empires of the ancient world, you look at the pharaohs and the kings and the... Uh, emperors of the ancient world, uh, they were worshipped as gods and the, the 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 divine, the locus of divinity was seen to be manifest in the highest expression of man in the the state, in whatever form that the state took. And actually, I mentioned earlier that when we talk about Baal, uh, we talk about um, uh, Milcom, Malcolm, Molech. Uh, yeah. In the o- Old Testament, which literally just means king or ruler, um, this was; these were forms of state worship. They were they were uh, setting aside worship of the living God for the worship of man enlarged, as you said, or mass man. Um, sometimes this is a bit harder to detect in modern democratic. Uh, societies, we're not as sensitive to it. Although, of course, in its revolutionary expression, uh, most of our listeners will be aware because we've referred to it so many times. Vox populi, vox dei, literally means the voice of the people is the voice of God, and within the the notion of radical democracy of uh, Rousseau and uh, many that uh, followed, uh, the the people um, are really mass man uh, because the collective, so the, the individual surrenders uh, his will and his desire to the collective, the general will. Uh, the general will is the will of the people as, is, as it is expressed in the state and so you surrender your freedoms to the state. So in a in a slightly more subtle way, the same thing is actually happening. Um, but uh, even with the, the the modern conception within liberal modern, more modern liberal democracies uh, of the idea of individualism uh, and uh, collectivism, um, it's interesting that that both of those supposed polarities. Uh, are in fact uh, working together uh, to, to create this idea, really, of, of mass man, of man uh, in the grip of the total authority of the state. Um, this week, again, I was reflect- reflecting, reading some passages in Jacques Ellul, uh, the French philosopher, And um, he says uh, this in the in the um, in his propaganda, the formation of men's attitudes. uh, As he is looking at this whole idea of individualist society or individualism um, and collectivism as though as though those ideas were somehow a contradiction, he says, no, he says, in actual fact, and I'm quoting now, an individualist society must be a mass society because the first move towards liberation of the individual is to break up the small groups that are an organic fact of the entire society. In this process, the individual frees himself completely from family, village, parish uh, or brotherhood bonds, only to find himself directly vis-a-vis the entire society. When individuals are not held together by local structures, the only form in which they can live together is an unstructured mass society. Similarly, a mass society can only be based on individuals, that is, on people in their isolation, whose identities are determined by their relationships with one another. Precisely because the individual claims to be equal with all other individuals, he becomes an an abstraction and is in effect reduced to a cipher. From this perspective, individualist society and mass society are two corollary aspects of the same reality. Now, I know that's quite a wordy, uh, uh, complex, rather abstract statement, but what he's saying is, is that this modern liberalism that we are Um, accustomed to in our society, dissolves the religious and the familial ties of a society and leaves only the rootless individual uh, within the context of the humanistic state. So society sort of veers between individualism and collectivism. And we've often talked about this in a slightly different way. We've talked about the mediating institutions, sphere sovereignty, uh, so he doesn't use that specific language, but he's referring to the same idea that when you destroy the bonds of church relationships, family relationships, you know, the authority structure of just like some of these newer churches that we've just referred to are all about breaking down those structures into sort of this freewheeling individualism. Uh, when we break down the bonds of the family and the The life of the church as a social whole, as a structure, as a hierarchy, and the bonds even of local community, and the bonds of vocation, and we talk about this radical individualism, all you do is end up with this abstract cipher, this abstract individual whose sole identity is to be a unit within the the idea of the state, of the humanistic state, mass man. And so that's the great irony of... On the one hand, you could say, well, let's emphasize the collective, the state uh, within, say, a more radically Marxist communist order. And you see a very sort of obvious uh, idolatry of the state. But in liberalism, in this sort of individualism, in this sort of radical notion of democracy, you only end up in exactly the same place. You try and break down God's order within society by asserting the radicality of individualism, and you end up only with mass man naked before the state with no mediating institutions. And so when you look at the West, whether you look at it in its Marxist frame, or you look at it in its its liberal democratic frame, devoid of God and his word and his structure for Human society and these mediating institutions, you end up in exactly the same place. We say, we don't want to dispense with the monarchy, but we'd be very happy if the uh, monarchy ceased to really mean anything, and then we can say hurrah for the king. Same about the family. We we don't want to explicitly say we are about the destruction of the family. But if the family could just become basically meaningless and be evacuated of its true meaning, we can all say hurrah for marriage. Hurrah for the family. And likewise, the church. We don't want to say, let us utterly destroy the institutional arrangements and life of the church. But if it could be evacuated of its true meaning in light of our individual freedom, we can all say, yes, hurrah for the church, but not really mean it, me- knowing that it really means nothing. And that is the idolatry of our age, of that of mass man, of man as God, whether you look at it in the, the uh, collectivist framework, or you look at it in the terms of radical individualism; it, in the end, means the same thing: man is God, uh, and it is, in the end, collective man, mass man, who is going to take the place of God himself.
1: Mm-hmm. It also it explains politically why often you've got to, you've got considerable overlap between. People who who want to, people who self-identify as anarchists and people who self-identify as Marxists, where there's there's this uh, this commitment to radical autonomy, but also, you know, whether conscious or not, a recognition that it needs it needs to be enforced. My if I'm if I'm my own little individual cell, and I I need uh, I need something much bigger than myself to actually uphold my own you know, one man empire. I need, I need a, uh, you know, a bigger, more muscular apparatus to, uh, to protect me from everyone else's little one man empire.
0: Precisely. The state has to be emphasized more and more, uh, given the anarchistic concept of freedom so that it is going to enforce these radical freedoms. I and mean, we see this, I mean, obviously the most, uh, plain cultural example of that right now is the is the radicalism of queer theory and of the lgbtq agenda radical autonomy must be enforced by law the state gets emphasized more and more and in the name of freedom your freedom is taken away and that's exactly why rousseau's um, radical democratic principle ends up with a totalitarian conception of the state you emphasize the individual and freedom uh, radical freedom more and more And it requires the state to be emphasized increasingly to assert those uh, freedoms. And so um, Rousseau unequivocally ends with a totalitarian conception of the state. But in Mm. the name of freedom and of the people, perhaps a a more or at least an equally telling example would be somebody like Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist um, philosopher never has there been a more radical philosophy of individual autonomy, of defining your very own essence um, because existence precedes essence in this view. So you must define meaning for yourself. You stand on the edge of the abyss um, and there is a radical idea of so-called freedom here. And yet Sartre himself ends up supporting a communist Marxist notion of the state, of course, he does, because it's required to assert the autonomy of man, to 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 actually legislate for all of this radical autonomy, and right. that uh, uh, emphasis on uh, this greater and greater emphasis on the state erodes steadily erodes people's freedoms to the point where you are a cipher, um, uh, a unit. Uh, before the before the all-powerful state. And this is the idolatry of the, of the Western nations now of our time. We talked about the church, but the idolatry of the nations now, uh, of the Western nations, is this idolatry of state. The state will be my savior, my provider, uh, will, will give me cradle-to-grave security. I will demand that of the state uh the the state is becoming the largest employer. Um, it it uh, through its taxing powers it essentially claims a total ownership a t- the total state claims a total ownership over people's lives. Mm. And so uh, we've ended up in a in a situation where we've claimed that liberal democracy is there to give us political freedom and now it's increasingly enslaving us. And when you look at both scripture, what we might call sacred history, and you look at secular history, it is a remarkable feature of history that some nations have literally, some cultures have literally come and vanished. They disappeared in history, like the Hittites, the Canaanites, a paradigmatic example there in the Bible, placed under God's ban for their idolatry and their perversions, and uh, they vanish from history. Mm-hmm. And what, a, what an utter tragedy it would be if uh, the Western culture were to, were to suddenly vanish from history because of our idolatry. But this has happened before. God uh, judges idolatry among the nations. And if we think just because we had a Christian past, if we think that because we uh, had sent missionaries around the world, If we think that uh, somehow we are immune from God's judgment against idolatry as nations because we had a past in which we were more faithful, we're making a very serious mistake. Uh, We could disappear from uh, history very quickly if we don't retrace our steps away from this nihilistic worldview now that is... Uh, utterly idolatrous in the grip of the worship of man
1: and this uh, we should uh, we should take this very seriously as a church as well and as you were talking there i'm just uh, just pulling up uh, the the lord's message to the church of ephesus in uh, in revelation 2 uh where he says let me find it here remember therefore from where you have fallen repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I guess, uh, I guess in summary, as you've just, uh, just laid out so clearly, we, we should be taking, we, we as citizens, as nations and as a church should be uh, a set, a looking at our situation much soberly than we have been and recognizing Mm -hmm. a that there is there is rampant idolatry all amongst us and see, looking for where, where have we participated in this and how should we be repenting and turning away from it.
0: Absolutely. And it begins, of course, with the idol factory of our own hearts, as John Calvin um, so uh, powerfully described it. And um, we know, of course, that until the consummation of all things, whether in church or state, uh, there will never be a church entirely free uh, from a, the, the, make, the making of idols. There won't be a, there won't be a state that's entirely free from those who would turn against the Lord. Um, in, in that respect, God's law is a form of warfare. In fact, that's all right. law structures yeah. all law orders are a form of warfare because they are there to punish iniquity. If you, yep. if, you, or if you violate the law of a given law order, the potential is that you'll be arrested and prosecuted because the law order is a war, is a war on lawlessness or it's a war on an alternate law order. So God's law word in his commandments, uh, so powerfully set forth in the second commandment, is an aspect of God's war on idolatry for the hearts of people. And is an aspect of his eschatological work in history that culminates, of course, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who is Lord and King and the ruler of the kings of the earth, that we are to worship and to serve him. And then we are commissioned to take out his gospel to disciple nations, to come and worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. God's law order is a war on idolatry. Just like now humanistic law is increasingly a war on the, on the Christian, a war Mm -hmm. on the church, a war on righteousness, a war on godliness. Uh, God's law is a war on evil, on wickedness and on idolatry. And that warfare continues throughout our lives and it will go on over our graves until, until the one who will open all graves, as Abraham Kuyper said, returns and fully establishes his righteousness and justice.
1: Well, that's, uh, that's a magnificent picture of the, uh, the work of God and the, the role that, uh, that his law plays in accomplishing that work and those purposes. Joe, this has been a great conversation. We're going to move on uh, from, the, uh, from the commandment against idolatry uh, to next week. We'll talk about uh, Thou Shalt Not Take the Name of the Lord Your God in Vain. From uh, from all of us here thanks for thanks for listening this has been the podcast for cultural reformation we remind you as always that from him and through him and to him are all things may god be glorified and we'll see you again next week